Well, I remember, uh, I remember packing my bags, um, just grabbing the essential things I thought I would need. I was, I was leaving. There was too much conflict, too many problems. I wasn't sure if I would be back in a week or if I would never be coming back. I just knew it was time to go. I think I was four or five years old at the time. And unfortunately, I can't really remember what it is that had me so worked up uh, in those moments. Possibly it was something that my mom and and dad had done to me, like forcing me to clean my room or make my bed. Possibly it was my sister being mean to me. I think she's over in the uh, child care area today, so that was good timing. Um... I remember gathering my things, some jeans and some t-shirts, and my mom reminding me to pack some underwear and my toothbrush. I can't believe that. I headed out. It was a long, hard journey. I recall I may have made it to our front yard and sat on the curb for a few minutes before I decided it was time to get back. <laughs> I'd recognized the error of my ways. It was time to go home. I was going home. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's funny just thinking about it. Um, maybe some of you have had a running away episode like this in, in your life. Maybe for you, it was like me. It was when you were a kid. Perhaps you got a little farther away from home than I did. Um, maybe you got all the way downtown. Maybe it was when you went off to college, and this was just a time to spread your wings and to run, just to go, just to be uh, apart from everything you'd ever been before, or maybe it was that first job or that first apartment where you're just setting out on your own and forget the past, I'm running away, um, getting away from home, from parents, finally able to do your own thing without anybody looking over your shoulder. Maybe for some of you, if you think about this, it was running away from a relationship or running away from a, a job, maybe even running away from your family. Uh, perhaps the pressure at some point in life has just become so uh, heavy and overwhelming on your shoulders that you just knew that you needed to get away. You, you just, instead of dealing head on with uh, an issue, you ran from it. Perhaps for others, or nearly for all of us, actually, in this category, it was running away from God. And maybe you were mad at God, maybe some loved one passed away, or some break that you thought you deserved, you didn't get. Whatever the cause, whatever the reason, there was anger between you and God, and you just ran from Him. Maybe you decided that you just didn't believe in Him anymore, or maybe you just decided that you didn't have time for anymore. Maybe some of us are even running away from God right now, however... um, Slowly and slyly it may be. Maybe some of us are physically here, but we're uh, moving away, at least in our hearts, away from Him. Well, we started a new series last, uh, last week, summer series on the book of Jonah. We're calling it Gripped by His Grace. And um, this truly is a story of Jonah being gripped by the grace of God on two levels that I hope that we'll pick up, and so I'll just kind of throw this out there, a little teaser, a little 
little way maybe of connecting with that subtitle. He was gripped by the grace of God in at least two ways. First of all, very personally gripped by the grace of God, held by God's unmerited favor and love. Jonah, who we saw last week, was one who was on the run, held by God's love. And we'll see that even more clearly here today. Gripped by the hands of God's grace. And yet we'll discover later in the book how not only was Jonah himself gripped by the grace of God, but he became and becomes gripped by the grace of God that is shown to others as well. And perhaps not as much gripped by this as we would hope for, but the lessons for ourselves come clear as we'll get into this book more and more, that not only are we ourselves gripped by grace, but but to be gripped by the fact that God would extend His grace to those that on the surface would not seem, uh, at least to us, worthy of it. Very important two, uh, two levels here to this understanding of grace. So we remember it last week, those of you who are here, that Jonah was a man on the run. And uh, he uh, had, had uh, moved out and in the wrong direction. You are familiar with the story. Some of you and others who were here last week recall that God called Jonah to preach to the great city of Nineveh, for they were an evil people. And for reasons not clearly, um, completely clear to us at this point that we will discover later, Jonah did arise, Jonah did get up, but he moved in the wrong direction. Um, I think, do I have that map on there, Robin? Is the map there somewhere? I'll just remind us of this in case you didn't see it last week. God called, he was here on the right side, Gath Hefer, and this was where Jonah was living, most likely. It's where he was from, at least. And God called him to go kind of northeast to Nineveh, and instead he went down to the coast of Joppa. And you remember the description of the words. He looked for a boat, he found a boat that was going as far away as he possibly could get from where God wanted him to go. And he paid the fare with his hard-earned money, and he got on that boat, boarded for Tarshish. Um, Moving away from God. Perhaps he was afraid of the Ninevites. Again, at this point we don't know. Maybe he was just worn out from doing the Lord's work. Perhaps he was concerned that his preaching would only result in the Ninevites' repentance and forgiveness. We'll soon find out, but for now, whatever the reason is that the narrator hasn't let us in on, we know that Jonah is moving in the opposite direction. The words of Scripture were this, he was fleeing from God's presence. And we recognize that that was not a good place to be. Hoping, perhaps, somehow, that he would escape this call, that God might forget about him, that he would get somebody else to do the work. But we pick up in verse 4 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, just look on the screen with me. Let's stand together, and let me read it for you from Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. At the end, I'll say the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. And this is from the English Standard Version, so it may be different than yours that you have in your hand. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, not the Seattle mariners, but the sailors, (laughs) 
I know, I just, some of you are like, who are the Seattle Mariners? But for me, I, baseball, just, mm, so I got to break that right now. Uh, that's why I chose this translation. No, it's not really. Then the Mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. You hear that? Little G-God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, the mariners, that is, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said, to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I said it last week, Jonah would have had to have known that there was nowhere that he could go to escape the presence of God. He would have had to have known from reading the Psalms and being familiar with the, the, the Hebrew Scripture that there was nowhere that he could go to escape God's presence. However, just maybe he thought that if I get far enough away, that if I just kind of you know, go incognito among the Gentiles of Tarshish, then God will maybe just kind of forget about me. He'll Get somebody that's a little easier, that's up for this, and he'll let me slide. We quickly discover, though, in these verses that God had most definitely not forgotten about Jonah. That, in fact, he knew his every move, that God had tracked him as he went to Joppa, as he found a boat, as he bought a ticket, as he went down onto the boat, and he was not going to let Jonah slip away as Jonah had perhaps hoped. This storm is not a coincidence. It didn't just happen to strike this boat that Jonah was on. And the Scriptures want to make it very clear that this is God at work. God's movement to get Jonah's and our attention in these hours, in these days. The narrator tells us, in fact, that God, the word he uses is hurled, that God hurled this great wind, much like the, the same Hebrew would be, word would be used for a, an athlete that would hurl a javelin, or in our culture today, a professional quarterback who would hurl a football. In other words, it wasn't like this wind just kind of, oops, slipped out of God's hands. Oh, what happened there? No, he hurled this great wind, it says. This God who Jonah would later declare to be one who made the land and the sea. This one 
who made this man who was even on the run, this one who cared deeply about him and would not let him get far from his grace without a fight. Interestingly, the wind and the storm are both described with the word great. In, in this translation, the storm is described as a mighty tempest. But the Hebrew word was, was the same one used to describe the wind and the storm, and it's the word great. Interestingly, the city of Nineveh has already been described as great and will be described as great later in the, the book. And also, at the end of this chapter, um, the great fish, the fish that swallows Jonah, will be described as great. It was a word that this narrator evidently liked to use. It's great. And it seems like he's wanting to remind us, even at this very initial stage of telling us this story, he's wanting to remind us that this is a great story. This this is a great God that is being dealt with in this story. And the grace and the loving kindness and the mercy of this God that is being extended to Jonah and then to the entire known world is great as well. And so what we discover in these verses that we've read already this morning is that it is this greatness of God's mercy and His grace that begins a high-speed pursuit across the the, the seas. A grace of God that will, as we sang this morning, never let go. So listen for a few moments to the ways that God's grace pursues Jonah and see if we can't see some of these at work even in our own lives, whether we're on the run right now or whether we're people who are living in relationship with God. Right from the start, we begin to see some indicators that God hasn't given up on Jonah and in fact may have something new in mind for him. We're told about the mariners, the sailors. I think some of the things that, the, that we're, we learn about these folks are pretty interesting. We're told essentially that they, uh, that, that, they, that they were afraid and that they each cried out to their own God. Now, we learn at least two things from, from that information, is that truly they were scared and, and That says something to us about this storm, right? Because, I don't know, if you're a sailor, sometimes you run into a storm at sea, and it ought to be something that you are fairly used to. And yet, this story goes out of its way to say they were afraid. They were scared. This was something unusual. This was a new circumstance, and whether it was the physical surroundings or the description, the wind and the storm, or whether it was something kind of in the air, so to speak, something spiritual. These sailors were deathly afraid. And we learned that they cried out to their own gods. What we learned from that is that these sailors were not Israelite people. These were not Hebrews. These were not people, uh, the people of God, of the Israelite nation. They were, they were foreigners, and most likely they were Gentiles, and since they each cried out to their own God, they were most likely a very multicultural, multinational, diverse group of sea hands that had all just kind of come to this boat and gotten a job. Kind of that motley crew that, that we maybe think of when we think of a ship's crew out of the harbor. No offense to those of you who have served on ship's crews out of harbors. 
What's interesting, though, about this is the ironic twist in what God seems to perhaps be doing in this place where Jonah has landed. For remember, Jonah has just days before refused to go to Nineveh, to this great city, this city of Gentiles, because we don't know for sure, but because we think perhaps that he was afraid God's grace would extend even to them and they would find forgiveness in the grace of God. And now Jonah finds himself on a boat full of what? Gentiles. And it's like in this moment of discovery about who he is on this ship with, who he is going to share these hours and days of trauma and drama, God has placed him in a context that Jonah was trying to run from. And he's given him a renewed sort of ministry context that was what God hoped for in the first place and Jonah had run from. I just wonder... Jonah was asleep at this point. He didn't really know what was going on necessarily with this crew. He hadn't perhaps even thought about this. But is this not just maybe a little bit of an indicator, a little bit of a sign that, that God still in his grace and in his goodness, even with this one who had rejected him and run away from him, is saying, huh, I still got plans for that guy. Like me rubbing my beard? It's kind of... Fuzzy here, sorry. Um, I still got purposes in mind for that guy. He's sleeping down on the inside of the boat. He refused to go to this great city. But here's a boat full of Gentile, multicultural cast-offs who perhaps Jonah still might have the opportunity to, to touch, to speak to. I'm going to create a new context for ministry. I, I wonder if for us sometimes, even when we're on the run, or perhaps even when we're on the stay, even when we're in relationships, some of the ways that God reveals his grace to us, some of the ways that God shows us his unmerited favor and his love is when he opens up new little opportunities for service and for ministry that perhaps we could have not ever seen before. And as I'm looking around this room here this morning, as I'm thinking about Cindy's story that we just heard, I'm reminded of so many of you who at certain times in life, perhaps it was a season when you were discouraged, perhaps it was at a season, and I can think of these times in my own life when I wasn't sure what was coming next, perhaps that uncertainty was starting to crowd in on my faith, and God opened up an opportunity. God opened up an opportunity to lead a small group or to to host a, a dinner over at your house or to just share uh, with a, a teenager or with a child, to volunteer at VBS. Perhaps for some of you, even this week as you come to serve with all these kids that will be gathered here this morning, this is, you know, most of us are kind of thinking, wow, those kids need me. VBS needs me because they need me to come and lead their game, or give them their snack, or lead them in their song. And in fact, at some level, they do need us. But we need to realize in ministry, so often, we need them. As we go to serve, as we go to share our lives, we, those are God's gifts of grace to us that are strengthening us and filling us and giving us a sense of meaning and of purpose. God is still at work with Jonah 
even in the establishing of this context on the boat, even in his disobedience, God is creating a new context in which Jonah might be faithful. We're told that while all this was happening, Jonah was down in the inner part of the boat and had laid down for a Sunday afternoon nap. I just say that because I know some of you, when Danny announced that there was a meeting this afternoon at 3.30, you just thought, what in the world is going on here? (laughs) Do you not know that Sunday afternoons are reserved for the deepest kind of nap that there can potentially be? I mean, it's affectionately been nicknamed the Nazarene nap, but I'm sure every denomination has their name for it. Some of you can go down hard, but as hard as you can go, Jonah went down harder. I mean, this is like Gilligan's Island, the three-hour tour, everything is going wrong. It's, you know, they're landing, they're, they're not getting anywhere, and Jonah is asleep down in the boat. Now, interestingly, what does this immediately remind you biblical scholars of? Jesus, right? Who was asleep while the storm hit the boat that his disciples were on. They're like, don't you care? And he's like, huh? Oh, be still, wind and waves. I got this. But, but just a little allusions throughout Jonah to Jesus, which is interesting. We'll pick up on some of that as we go along. But here's Jonah asleep, a Sunday afternoon nap. We don't know what day it actually was, but he had fallen into a deep sleep from which there wasn't much that would wake him. And, and you can imagine, so some of you have been in this kind of a sleep. Most commentators think that it was the sleep that was brought on by a deep and dark depression. Perhaps here was, here was Jonah coming to some grips with the fact that God had called him to go here and he had gone here and gotten on this boat and there was no turning back now and what have I done? Maybe at the other hand, he's thinking, if I just get down deep enough into the boat and if I just go to sleep and turn off my brain waves for a little bit, perhaps God can't pick up on me down here. The descent of his life from prophet to to coastline to ship to inner part to bed to sleep dramatizes so powerfully the descent of Jonah's life down and down away from the presence of God but here without a doubt is a lack of desire to move forward a desire just to go to sleep maybe you've had this before if I just go to sleep Maybe I'll wake up and all these problems will be gone. And we know that they won't. So then we kind of refashion our thinking and we say to ourselves, well, at least if I go to sleep, then I won't have to think about my problems for at least the time that I'm asleep. Typically what happens is we can't get to sleep. So then we lay there thinking about our problems anyway, right? Well, Jonah had the ability to get to sleep and he did um, very, very well. His physical sleep is also, again, a, a, a sign of the spiritual slumber that had come over him on this journey. He was not only falling asleep physically, but as he moved farther from the presence of God, his spiritual sensitivities were deadening. His alertness to the things of God were dying. His, his readiness to respond to the call of God and be obedient was falling asleep as well. It's clear from our story, though, that God doesn't plan 
to simply let him sleep. This time, it's, it's not a ministry opportunity. It's a, it's a person that God seems to send Jonah's way. And it's not another prophet. It's not a priest. It's not a religious. It's not like the, the, the chaplain of the ship. It's, it's the captain of the ship. Person with the highest authority on board, for sure, but not anyone necessarily with spiritual authority who, who comes to Jonah in those moments, who God, I believe, sends to Jonah. I actually love the way this version translates the captain's question to Jonah. What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise. Similar words that Paul will quote in Ephesians. Arise, O sleeper speaking about those of us who are to come to life as we put our faith in Christ. Here is the captain of the ship. The NIV just has this. How can you sleep right now? And then again, in a moment of irony, as a means of startling Jonah's conscience, the captain, interestingly, uses the very same words that God had initially used to call Jonah to go to Nineveh. Arise. Arise. And you wonder if in those moments, again, Jonah is just stricken by guilt, his conscience as he hears this word from the captain. Oh yeah, that's what God said to me too, and now I'm hearing it again. And yet perhaps even in those moments, Jonah is hearing a second chance. The invitation now is to arise and pray to your God. Perhaps the God will hear you and give a thought to us. Do you remember the captain's words? So now it's the Gentile captain of the ship calling the prophet of the Lord to prayer. Is this backward or what? Is this ironic? Have the tables been turned? It's the Gentile captain not being rude or gruff necessarily, just urgently and desperately calling Jonah to pray. Pray. Be who you claim to be. Be a follower. Be a prayer. It was a Gentile prophet stirring him towards spiritual practice and devotion. We're actually not told whether or not Jonah called out to the Lord at this point in response to the captain's response. But do you think maybe he was caught by the irony of it in that moment? You think maybe um, he thinks to himself for a moment, here I am on the run from God and this crazy Gentile captain is asking me to pray. I'm on the run in a spiritual haze and here is the last person in the world I would expect to hear it from calling me to prayer. I'm the prophet. I'm supposed to be calling you to prayer. And Jonah, if he would have thought things like this at that time, must have thought, oh God, what a sense of humor you have. How is it in your life? And just take a moment. Just turn to somebody next to you and just share about a person. Maybe it was a godly person. Maybe it was somebody out of the blue that you hadn't ever met before. Maybe it was a non-believing person, but something that they did, some sort of challenge that they placed on you or some sort of encouragement that they gave to you. How has it been for you in your life, a person, can you identify one, 
whom God has used as a sign of his grace, as a sign of the fact that he is still at work in your life. Just take a minute, turn to somebody next to you, maybe one or two others, and just share about a person like that that God has used to be a person of grace in you. All right, let the next person talk if they haven't yet. Last night, I got to be at the graduation ceremony for the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission along with several of you there who who were there to celebrate and watch with these graduates as again they walked to the stage and, and... and celebrated their year-long recovery program, their graduation from it. And uh, once again, it was so good to hear the testimonies, the reports of how God has been at work in the lives of these men and women. And over and over again, there was a word that came from the graduates simply saying, I'd like to thank my mentor. I'd like to thank my sponsor. I wouldn't be here without them. I'd like to thank that teacher who invited me to play the drums so that I could be drawn into the body of Christ. Over and over again last night and over and over again in our lives, I'm struck by the way that God just seems to have the right people at the right time at the right place. It was back in January for me. I was just standing out on a baseball field in the outfield. It was tryouts and all the dads were out there shagging fly balls and one dad that I've known for several years, who's not a believer, just came over to me, kind of slid up close and said, hey, my mother-in-law has cancer. Just kind of trying to tell people who, you know, pray and stuff. (laughs) Maybe you could remember her. So I just asked him about, I've been asking, I've been praying, I've I've been challenged by this man to pray. I know a God who can do something about these issues in our world and in our lives. And somehow, though this man isn't necessarily following him fully, he has some idea that I know a God like that. And so he wants me to pray to him for her. So I've done that, and I've lit a candle, and I've tried to remember to be in prayer for her and for their whole family. And I've asked along the way and just last week was able to ask him and his wife about how her mom's doing. And she told, told me that she's in remission and is doing well and is able to, she had just retired like weeks before she was given this diagnosis and now is getting her strength back after her chemo and is able to participate and enjoy some of the, some of the joys of retirement. But you can imagine my joy. I'm thrilled about her prognosis. But I'm honestly equally as thrilled that he would invite me and challenge me, call me to pray. 
And, and I, I, it's, it's this guy, it's other people that God will bring into our lives that, that will alert us, that will awaken us. Perhaps when your spiritual sensitivities are, are deadening, are weakening, and your alertness to God maybe isn't what you know it should be, and yet then in that moment some situation arises and it's like, wait a second, there's a, there's a follower of Jesus that is needed in this scene, that is being called upon to, to step up, and you know it's you because... This person has asked you, and this person has invited you into that. These are, these, are, these are like laser shots of the grace of God to us. They are ways that he says, wake up, wake up, look at this. This person needs you, this world needs you. Don't sleep, wake up. Don't run, wake up. It's our invitation, it's our privilege. The sailors are growing desperate. They've each prayed to their own gods. Nothing's happened. They decide to narrow down their efforts. And uh, so it was decided they would cast some lots to decide who was the guilty party. Lots of uh, scholarly discussion as to what casting lots looked like. It usually is thought that these were kind of like dice that they had made. And perhaps they were light sides and dark sides. And if you threw them through two dice and they both came up dark, then the guy was guilty. If they both came up light, then he was innocent. And if they came up mixed, then let's roll them again. And, uh, and maybe it was drawing straws. I don't know exactly. But uh, this kind of apparently random way of choosing the guilty party that is used throughout the scriptures, actually, to, to uh, identify certain folks. And so evidently this was not just a a secular practice, but in this practice, um, somebody had to have done something, the thinking was, to really tick off somebody else that was pretty important. For this kind of storm, somebody here made somebody there really mad, and we need to find out who that was. Mostly because we just need to find out if there's anything that we can do for or to this person to appease that other one who got us into this place. Do you think that when the lots fell on Jonah, he began to get the feeling like maybe he was being punked or he was on candid camera? You know, they roll the dice, they draw the straws, whatever it was, and, and it lands on Jonah. And you can just imagine him as all the stares and the gazes of the eyes and these angry looks of these men started to just fall on him. You can just kind of imagine him thinking, of course it landed on me. Everything is going wrong right now. Of course. Why wouldn't the lots fall to me? Where's the camera? Where's the camera? Who's punking me right now? I'm the guilty party. It's becoming clear to Jonah at this point that God is hunting him down. <laughs> That's the other thought, maybe that I think crossed his mind. Of course they fell to me. I'm the guilty party. And of course they fell to me because it's pretty clear by what's going on here that my little plan to go as far away from God and Him forget about me just isn't working out. And so... I'm the guilty party. This God is hunting me down. 
I have not been ignored. I have not been passed over. In fact, it appears that I have a mission field right here before my eyes, albeit a very angry and scared mission field of the men on this boat. And so it was when the questions started flying. It was as if the sailors don't really know what to say. The storm is raging. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? Who are your people? These questions just start coming out. And, and you can sense that part of them is, is like really mad at him, but the other part of them is not wanting to be too mad at him because he obviously is connected to a power beyond themselves. And if we make him mad, then this could only possibly get worse. They're trying to ask anything that they can think of in these moments of panic to get some idea of his background, some hint as to which God he served and how they might appease it. But again, I'm struck by Jonah's response to them. Kind of the climax, really, of these lines. For instead of answering them directly, he, they gave him five questions to which he could have given five answers very specifically. It's all I know, name, rank, and serial number, and I'm done. But instead of answering directly all of their questions, instead of actually giving them the information that they want, Jonah responds to their interrogation with a concise yet powerful declaration of faith. I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, we, we need to know that in Jonah, there are at least two words that are used for God. One, Elohim, is kind of a generic word for God, the name for God, that when they spoke about praying to all their gods, this is the word that the narrator would have used. And there's another word that when Jonah speaks of his God, the Lord, it's the word Yahweh. And for him even to speak this word is, is meaningful, is powerful for him to speak that into, into the air in these moments. I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh. And in case you were wondering, he's the God of heaven. In case you were wondering, all these other Elohim, all these other gods are subservient to the God who is on high, the God who is above all, the God of the heavens. And in case you are wondering, he also is the one who made the land and the sea of which we are on. Finally, the prophet speaks. Jonah, this man who is called by God to speak his word to the world, has thus far been silent in this book. Did you notice the first eight verses of this book? And Jonah doesn't say a word. It's not till nine that he finally speaks. But when he speaks, it's powerful. It's as if all the other things, the, 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 the ministry opportunity that maybe he didn't really even know about, the, the captain that had come to awaken him from his sleep, the the, the seemingly random but purposeful circumstance of the lots being cast and declaring him guilty. It's as if all these other things that were going on in this boat were slowly but surely waking Jonah up to this reality that he was, in fact, being pursued by God. 
God had not forgotten him. God had not abandoned him. Even if God, even if he had run from God, God had never let him go. And now in this moment, as I envision him kind of coming to his spiritual senses, as the scales kind of falling from his eyes, if you will, though not everything will be perfect, even through the rest of this chapter, there's this moment where Jonah seems to say and come to a clear recognition that You know, what I've been over the last few days or weeks, whatever it had been, it's not me. That, that running away thing, that going to the boat, that buying a ticket, going down and going to sleep and trying to sleep off my problems and running from God. It's God's grace has grabbed hold of me and I've seen it now in these ways. That's, I know that's not me. It's not who I want to be. It's not who God has called me to be. It's not who he's created me to be. I am a Hebrew. I'm a person of God. I worship Yahweh, the one true God of the heavens, who made the very land and the sea. It's as if he can do simply nothing other than acknowledge this truth of his core identity and begin to move in new ways. Begin to, to return a bit, even with this statement, this declaration that scholars have kind of said over the years, this amazing declaration of faith from out of nowhere almost, seemingly. But it's a hinge point for Jonah. And I believe it can be a hinge point for each of us. As perhaps we're on the run, as perhaps we're moving away to be caught by the laser shots of God's grace and reminded of who we are in Him. If nothing else grabs you this morning, let the fact that you are God's chosen child today grab hold of you. And may you live in that identity in new and fresh ways. Storms, problems, people, our kids, our friends, circumstances, you name it, God is in hot pursuit of you and he will use whatever means necessary to be in relationship. 